Good to be back this morning. Had a most enjoyable meeting in Sherry's home town. My personal Mayberry that we get to visit every so often. Appreciate Jeff. They've been struggling with his trying to get better from his operation. He's making some progress, which is good to see. Appreciate Jeff jumping in and taking care of the pulpit. We'll look forward to, I'm assuming I not had opportunity to call him and I didn't have the number, Jason uh, Jackson Irwin, who will be with us tonight. He, assuming they had some matters that uh, necessitated his perhaps going to university this morning in connection with his beginning his schoolwork there, but he will be with us and speak tonight. Our lesson this morning is the 12th lesson in this continuing series on questions from God, number 12. There was a unique moment in time in which the mighty angelic host of God assembled in the presence of the Lord. By the permissive will of God, Satan was allowed to join them. God inquired of Satan, Whence comest thou? Satan responded with what God already knew. From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Job 1.7 Peter adds to Satan's own words by describing him as a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. Satan hates God and those who are devoted to him. He loathes babies and children who in the time of innocence are beyond his reach. He abhors truth and righteousness and loves error and sin. He hunts for souls to destroy as a lion seeks prey to devour. He is ever on the move. He never grows weary. He has no need of rest or sleep. His quiver is never empty of arrows of spiritual ruin. Satan is depraved in mind and being. Evil inheres in his nature. He is incapable of possessing a single good thought. He rejoices in iniquity. He yearns and labors for the eternal loss of every soul. He is beyond redemption and the most torrid fires of Gehenna will be his perpetual abode. God's second question to Satan was, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man who feareth God and escheweth evil, Job 1.8. Satan argued that Job's righteousness and service to God was rooted in selfishness and that he only revered God because it was materially beneficial. He asserted that if God would erase his physical blessings, quote, he will curse thee to thy face. Job 1.11. Satan's basic thesis was that God was not totally worthy of man's love 
and devotion simply on the basis of who he was and that he could prove it if God would grant him access to Job's wealth. Conceding to Satan's desire for destructive power over Job's household and wealth, Job's oxen and donkeys were taken by the Sabaeans. His sheep were savaged by fire. His camels were stolen by Chaldeans. His ten children were killed by a strong wind that destroyed the house where they were feasting. And all of his servants were slain except for four that escaped to inform him of these tragedies. Job rent his robe, shaved his head, worshiped God, and sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job 1, verse 22. A second convocation of the angelic host transpired with the adversary of both God and man in their midst, and Satan's presence evoked the same two previous questions from God. Satan challenged God to allow Job's health to be affected, and he will curse thee to thy face, Job 2.5. Again, by God's permissive will, Satan plagued Job's body with debilitating affliction that left him in ineffable misery for months. Job 7, 3, 29, 2. Job's wife, who should have been his greatest aid and source of encouragement, added to his anguish, declaring, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die, Job 2.9. Four friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu arrive at Job's house to mourn with him and to comfort him. Being the younger man and out of respect for their age, Elihu does not speak until his older friends have finished their speeches. And then he speaks in Job 32-37. Following seven days of silent grief, Job cursed the day of his birth, wished he had died in his mother's womb, and questioned the purpose of life in the midst of suffering. Chapter 3. Eliphaz rebuked Job for not heeding his own counsel under trials that he had given to others judged him with his own false philosophy that all adversity ensues from personal sin and with subjectivism based on a dream. He depicts Job as a foolish and silly man whose sin has rendered him destitute and destroyed his family, misapplies the principle of Romans 2.4, and points to potential blessings if Job would accept God's chastisement. Chapters 4 and 5. Job depicts his suffering as immeasurable, accuses God as using him as a target for his poisonous arrows, longs for death at God's hand, reproves his friends, and demands proof that he has sinned and views God as chasing after him for months of sleepless, suffering nights, terrifying dreams, and loathsome bodily conditions. Chapter 6 and 7. 
destitute of proof. Bildad labors in describing Job as a grievous sinner, as the only answer to his immense suffering by misapplying, in Job's case, the principle of cause and effect. He calls for Job's repentance that God might bless him. Chapter 8. Job is helpless in trying to contend with God's omnipotence. He expresses his innocence, hurls multiple accusations against God, and again wishes he had died at birth. Chapters 9 and 10. Pursuing his erroneous views of life that all suffering is due to personal sin. Zophar looks at Job through merciless eyes and declares that God has punished him less than his iniquities deserve and calls for his repentance if he desires a renewal of God's blessings. Chapter 11. Job rebukes his friends accusing them of devising lies to buttress their faulty concept of life. He calls for their silence, affirms that he will continue to trust in God even if he should choose to slay him, reflects on the brevity of life and wishes he could hide from the expressions of it. Chapters 12 to 14. In his second speech, Eliphaz intensifies his harsh judgments of Job, accusing him of vain talk, possessing no fear of God, speech that constitutes self-condemnation, pride, drinking iniquity like water, reviling God with his words and suffering because he is wicked. Chapter 15, how does that sound for comfort and consolation? Job describes him, Bildad and Zophar, as miserable comforters, asserts the continuance of his grief and physical afflicted condition, accuses God of hating him, delivering him to the wicked, and breaking him into pieces while clinging to his innocence and longing for an advocate in heaven. He speaks of his wretched physical state and his approaching death. Chapter 16, 17. Bildad chastises Job for his words and commences a lengthy depiction of the consequences of wickedness of which Job is the object. Chapter 18. Job expresses the anguish of his soul over the vexations of his friends, reproaches God for what he views as ill treatment from his hand, yearns for pity from his friends, and in the midst of his suffering and despair, he utters a monumental statement of faith, declaring, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 
Job 19, 25 to 26. The whole of Zophar's response to Job is a vivid portrait of the bravery, consequences, and inevitable destruction of a wicked life of which Job is the object, chapter 20. Relative to temporal matters, Job offsets Zophar's portrayal of the wicked by pointing to their often enjoyment of numerous blessings and length of life, proving that a man's material state is no judge of his spiritual state. That's a great truth. Chapter 21. Eliphaz cleaves to his furious view of life that Job's severe suffering is proof of his grievous sin by saying, Is not thy wickedness great and thine iniquities infinite? 22 verse 5. Absent of proof, he enumerates sins of which he believes Job is guilty. He cites the judgment of God on the wicked of Noah's day and called for Job's repentance so that his material circumstances can be reversed. It just keeps going back in these friends' minds that all sin, every specific, are, are all bad things that happen. Every specific bad thing is the result of a specific sin. That happened to you, you must have sinned to bring that about. That happened to you, you must have sinned to bring that about. They cannot get away from that philosophy. That's what made them such miserable comforters. They couldn't comfort a man whom they thought was guilty of immense sin because he was under immense suffering. Job expounds on his lack of perception of God's providence in his life, acknowledges the bitterness of his complaints, longs to argue his case before God. He's going to get that opportunity in just a little while, but he's not going to enjoy it, is he? Wants to argue his case before God if he could but find him continues to maintain his innocence and professes that he is afraid of God. He catalogs a number of sins in society and wonders when God is and where God is and why he remains silent in the midst of such human perversity. Chapters 23 and 24. You remember Habakkuk had difficulty with that. Couldn't understand why God wasn't doing something about the wickedness in Judah. And you also remember that God says, I'm already at work on that. Bildad's final speech consists of just six verses. He is mentally exhausted, weary of the debate, and is destitute of anything else to say. He's run out of anything to say. He briefly addresses the omnipotence and holiness of God in contrast to man who is nothing more than a worm. A final jab at Job. Chapter 25. Job's concluding speech begins with a description of Bildad's words as futile and proceeds to depict the mighty power and workings of God in the world. Chapter 26. Job accuses God of vexing his soul perseveres in his claims of innocence and expounds on the eventual judgment of the wicked, chapter 27. Claiming to be wise, Job's friends have assaulted him with accusations of evil conduct void of proof. 
Job poses his own question. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Verse 12. And points to God as the source thereof. Chapter 28. Job pointed to his life prior to his bitter trials. Here was his life. Just a brief little picture of it prior to all these problems that came upon him from the hand of Satan. When he sat in the gates of the city and was sought out by his contemporaries to aid them in advancing its affairs and prosperity. So he would sit there in the gates of the city where the rulers of the city would gather and uh, these rulers would ask Job to share with them his wisdom as to how to best advance the prosperity and the affairs of the city. He asserted that they could bear witness to his benevolent spirit in assisting the poor, widows, orphans, disabled, and calling for justice for those who had been abused. He offered counsel and encouragement and envisioned a long and happy life. Chapter 29. Job moves from the past to the present and narrates the tragedy of his current condition. He is scorned and abused by young rebels whom he describes as children of fools. Verse 8. Afflicted by God who ignores his cries for help and slighted by those whom he had aided in the past. Chapter 30. So he had done a lot of good for a lot of people. A lot of good for a lot of people in great need. The poor, orphans, the disabled, others. And now in his time of greatest need, all he's got is three friends thus, friends thus far who have just accused him of every kind of vile, evil deed a man could commit. No wonder he calls him miserable comforters. In his closing remarks, Job affirms his purity of mind in refusing to view a woman through eyes of lust and his refraining from adultery that he describes as a, quote, heinous crime and a, quote, fire that consumeth to destruction. Verses 11 and 12. He denies any mistreatment of his servants, claim charitable conduct toward those in need as a way of life, pointed to his refusal to make money his God, his worship and devotion to God alone, and his concern for strangers and even his enemies. Chapter 31, no wonder God asked Satan, have you considered my certain Job, my servant Job? There's just none like this man in all the earth. Oh, he's a good man. Well, Job is fighting for himself and trying to help his miserable comforters of friends to see I'm, I'm not what you have pictured. I don't know what all's going on here, but I'm not what you pictured. I'm not a perfect man, but I'm not the sinner you pictured me to be. 
And you're just wrong in your philosophy of life that every little thing that happens is a result of some specific sin. That's just not true. And you've used a false philosophy to misjudge me. So he pictures his good life. And he was a good man. This was not God's doing. This was the permissive will of God. This was Satan's doing, allowed by God. In order to prove to Satan, I am worthy of worship and devotion simply because of who I am. Chapters 32 to 37 constitute the speech of Elihu. He expresses his wrath against Job because he views him as having allowed, uh, as having labored to justify himself instead of God. And against these three friends because they had condemned Job as a grievous sinner without proof. Now these chapters and these speeches of Elihu are a whole lot more thoughtful and reflective and proper than his three older friends. He doesn't spend all these chapters just castigating Job. He starts off by getting on him for trying to, as he viewed it, justify himself instead of God. But he makes some powerful points of truth as a younger man that these older friends had not come to be characterized by. He cites his youth and respect for the aged as his reason for waiting to speak declares that age has no monopoly on wisdom and that he is full of arguments and can no longer constrain himself. It had all he could take listening to these friends. Now it's his turn to speak. That's chapter 32. He confesses his sincerity, humanity, respectful hearing of Job's speeches, gently reproves him. Notice that, gently reproves him for striving against God, states that God is not obligated. And this was true. God is not obligated to respond to man's complaints. Acknowledges Job's tragic condition and argues that one of God's purposes in chastisement is to save man from himself. Chapter 33. He uses Job's own words against him, rebukes him for his accusations against God. And Job needed that. Oh, he had made many awful, awful, sinful accusations against God. That statement, he did not charge God foolishly or sin with his lips. That was made early on. But as he got into his speeches, oh, he was, he was highly harsh in his judgments against God. From a human perspective, all of us can understand that. Doesn't justify one word, not one word. But he was a human being and he was suffering more than any of us have ever thought about suffering. And he was speaking out of immense, immense suffering. He attempts to justify God's nature, Elihu, and ways in view of Job's contentions that his efforts to be pure are in vain, chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. And his inability to find God, Job's statements back there in 24, 89. That's chapter 35. Elihu reaches the apex of his speeches 
with an eloquent summary of the majesty and omnipotence of God. He begins by stating his desire to speak on God's behalf. Chapter 36, 2. Perhaps there is no commentary on the whole of the Bible that excels the three words of Isaiah 40, verse 9, Behold your God. We've made that comment before. I believe that's true. This is Elihu's sentiment to Job. He declares, quote, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. 3714. Hmm. If the world would do that for just a handful of minutes, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Look at the prince of the night the king of the day, the moon and the sun, the trillions upon trillions, innumerable stars in the heaven. Look in the mirror at your physical body, the working of God's hand. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Elihu, Elihu's basic point is, if Job had been thinking right about God throughout his afflictions, he would have been able to discern the instructive disciplinary nature of them designed for his good and would never have commenced his accusatory conduct. That's chapters 36 and 37. Among the numerous allegations that Job makes against God was his refusal to sever himself or to uh, reveal himself to him, inform him of his sins that would demand such adversities and allow him the opportunity to defend himself. Chapter 13, 20 to 24. God addressed Job's desire with his first question. And what a question this is. This question, we won't do this, but this is a series of sermons. This one question. Who is this? that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge. Chapter 38, 2. What a powerful question from God that is. The whole of Job's being was encased in inexpressible anguish. In a mere moment of time, all of his material wealth vanished. All of his servants that maintained his flocks and herds were killed except four. A broken man he watched as ten coffins of his ten children were lowered into the earth. Boils covered his body. His skin was black with bruises and worms fed on his flesh. Scenes of terror visited his sleepless nights. Flowing tears were his constant companions. His breath was repugnant. His body was skin and bones and burned with fever. He was betrayed by his wife, forsaken by his relatives, viewed as an alien by his maids that served in his house, and vile use covered his face with spittle. We've not been in a condition like that. God's first question, is proof to Job that, God, that Job's immense suffering did not justify his harsh criticism of God. Every word of God is truth, John 17, 17, full of light, Psalms 119, 130, and all of his commandments are righteous, Psalms 119, 172. 
When a man is at variance with a single word from the mind of God, he is at war with the truth. He has deleted its light and perverted its righteous nature. It is a grievous evil to darken the counsel of God with one's own thinking. The religious world is replete with self-acclaimed spokesmen who, of God who speak out of their own hearts, Ezekiel 13, 2, and not from the heart of God. The church of liberalism heralds emotions over the truth. It seeks liberty from laws and commandments that demand, restrain, and restrict. It confuses feelings with spirituality. It redefines biblical terms to grant a license to self-will. Its members are unable to perceive that they have darkened the counsel of God by words without knowledge. God's initial question to Job is followed by a host of questions that Job could not answer. God inquired of him, shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Job 40 verse 2. You want to contend with me, Job? Do you really want that? Job answered, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Job 40, verse 4. When God finished humbling Job, he said, Who is that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me to know. Job 42, 3. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42.6. Now we close with this final statement that is much worthy of our reflection. When a man's heart swells with pride, when he thinks he has analyzed God and his truth to completeness, when he joins Eliphaz and boasts, lo this, we have searched it. So it is. Hear it and know thou it for thy good. Now, I'm going to repeat that because that is one proud, arrogant statement. This is what Eliphaz said. Now let me reach back to this statement. When a man's heart swells with pride, when he thinks he has analyzed God like Eliphaz and his friends did, except for Elihu, analyzed God and his truth to completeness, and when he joins Eliphaz and boasts, and here's this statement now that Eliphaz made to Job. Hold this, he says. We... Me and my friends, we have searched it. So it is. Hear it and know thou it for thy good. What? Pure arrogance and pride that was. 
Job 6.27. When a man does that, swelled up with his own pride and arrogance. He thinks he's, he's got it all. He knows it all. Nobody can tell him anything. He's got it all figured out. He searched the mind of God and he knows everything about God. Just ask him, he'll tell you. He would do well to reflect upon the questions with which God inquired of Job. Who is this that darkeneth counsel with words void of knowledge? That is much the problem of the world in which we live. What a man Job was, what a book that is, and what insights it offers, and what great admonition it grants to enhance our own spiritual life. Your president never obeyed the gospel. We encourage you by faith to repent of your sins, confess Christ, be baptized into Christ. He that believeth and is baptized, shall we say. How many have darkened the simple answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? By words without knowledge. If you need the prayers of this church for any reason, we hope you'll come now while we stand and say.
am with him, I enter in, sing it all and o'er again. Christ receive the sinful man, make the message clear and plain. Christ receive the sinful man. If you'll turn to number 86.